And if you're new and you're wondering why we add on the end of Redemption Arcadia to specify our location, it's because uh, Redemption Church is actually one church with six different congregations. Uh, We have four that are uh, up and going and have been for uh, a number of years, and then two others that are just in uh, infancy. They're in the planting stage. Those would be in West Mesa, which is uh, right now a, uh, a bilingual congregation, and then uh, we have one in Flagstaff that just launched as well that's doing, both of them actually are doing very, very well. We're excited about that. But we are one church in many different uh, locations, and so we are the Arcadia expression of Redemption Church. Uh, and so we are glad that you are here in Arcadia with us. Um, kind of exciting times we live in. How was uh, Tuesday for you? Don't, don't answer that question. Never mind. Um, Because I know that based on statistics, uh, for about half of you it was really good, and for about half of you it wasn't so good. Uh, I was uh, watching with great interest on Tuesday night, as I'm sure many of you were. I was also, believe it or not, I I, I was multitasking. I'm a guy. I can do that, uh, though, occasionally. I was was watching a really exciting volleyball match out in Gilbert, uh, as well as watching on my phone uh, the Twittersphere and and trekking out uh, all the different... Uh, news channels, and it was really interesting. Uh, it's a good thing they have timeouts during the volleyball game. That's why I was able to multitask. But at any rate, um, when it was finally decided and they called the race for President Obama, uh, uh, Ben Craig's tweeted this, and it was, I thought, the tweet of the night. I thought it was, it was really good. And so I just wanted to repeat it for you. He, he said this, if, if your hope is in Barack Obama, tomorrow starts four years of heaven. If your hope is in Mitt Romney, tomorrow starts four years of hell. And if your hope is in Jesus Christ, tomorrow is Wednesday. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to get up and yell that at the volleyball match, but I figured it would be a little out of context. So anyway, we're in the 10th week of our series on 1 Peter. And uh, just a very quick review, less than last week because we have more material to go through Uh, Peter opens this letter with this statement, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. So Peter starts right out of the gate telling us about our new nature in Christ, that we are new creations, and and that we have been delivered from the tyranny of self-centeredness and sin, and we now have this hope that is in the living Jesus Christ, a living Son of God, and that by virtue of that, we also have an inheritance that we have been born into. Not only the inheritance that we have eternally in in, in the new kingdom of of heaven, in in heaven with the new Jerusalem, but also this kingdom here that we are now living in. And as a result of being born again, we now have the ability, the power in our lives to to live uh, as we're called to as holy people, as people who are set apart, as people who are different than, than the way we used to live our lives. But also as a result of that, we, we need to be uh, mindful of the fact that we need a church community. We need to be in the faith community together and, and that we're going to live by a, an ethic that a lot of people talk about in our world, but we are called to actually do at every turn and at every point with each other. We are to love each other affectionately and unconditionally in the church at all times. And also, not only that, but we are also called to to make spiritual sacrifices uh, in our lives. Now, 
Paul, in Romans chapter 12, says that our entire life is to be lived as an act of worship, as a spiritual sacrifice to God. Peter uh, believes that, but says it differently. He says that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices pleasing to God by the power of the resurrected Christ in us. And then he uses that as sort of the setup to let us know that, that we're also to live in subjection to these various authorities in the world. That we are to submit ourselves to people and institutions that, quite frankly, maybe we really don't want to submit ourselves to. But as our call in Christ calls us to that, we, we do that not because we're so good at it, but because we have the power of the gospel living in us. And so we submit to the governing authorities. We submit to workplace authorities. We submit to family authorities. And, and we live our lives as humble servants in that way. And so now we come to a transitional section of the letter. We are going to handle 10 verses today, and yeah, that's a lot. We only did one verse last week in 40 minutes, and so if you do the math, this sermon's going to be 400 minutes long. Don't, don't worry, I, I did some edits, and I, I think I got it down to the pro appropriate amount of time. But we do have a lot of work for us today, but these 10 verses are really in two sections, two different paragraphs. Uh, the first five verses that we're going to look at, the verses that Chad read, uh, kind of tie a bow on the first half of this letter and sort of wrap things up for us. And then the second five verses, verses 13 through 17, actually introduce us to the rest of the letter. A and the theme for most of the rest of the letter is the fact that as, as Christians, we're going to live a life of suffering and it's going to be a challenge. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be uh, talking about that. So we'll tackle this, uh, this passage in two main sections, and here uh, is the big idea for each section. Verses 8 through 12, the big idea is this. In the midst of being subject to others, in other words, living a life of submission to others and serving others, those who are in the church, you and I, we must be united and unwavering in our desire to be a blessing to others. So that's the big idea of the first five verses. And then the big idea of the second five verses is this. As Christians, we are to be prepared to suffer for doing good by placing our hope in Jesus Christ. And so let me, let me just reread what, Cha what Chad read to us, these uh, five verses that get us started today. It's always good to just keep reading Scripture. It's always good to know Scripture. And so Peter says, starting in verse 8, Finally, all of you... Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this, to this, you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For, and then he quotes uh, Psalm 34, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we get started with this. I'm going to spend a good chunk of our time, actually, on verse 8, because there's, there's a lot in this whole passage, but verse 8 has, has a number of things, including those five things that we're called to. But first, Peter says, before he gets to those five things that we're called to do, he says, all of you. And so here's a question for you. Who is excluded when Peter says all of you? Yeah, nobody's excluded. We all like to look for the exceptions, the way around. No, all of us are included in this. All of us are, to, are called to these principles listed here, not only in verse 8, but the principles listed beyond. 
Matthew Henry, the great biblical scholar, says this, The calling on the life of a Christian is twofold, glorious privilege and challenging duties. I might say it this way, as a result of our glorious privilege in Christ, we are to embrace a challenging lifestyle. And so what are we going to be challenged by Peter to do? Well, the first thing he says is we're to have unity of mind. Literally, the Greek means here that we are to harmonize the way we think. Now, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that we are to have the mind of Christ, and therefore, we should be able to live in harmony with each other because we see the world from the same vantage point or the same perspective of God's truth. Now, this is not to say that we're not going to have disagreements about things. This is not to say that we aren't going to wrestle with things together. But it is to say that in the end, we look to Christ to be our arbitrator, our mediator, and and the purveyor of our truth. And so we are going to be able to be harmonized even in the midst of our diversity and our, at times, our disagreement. And so we live in harmony. Have you ever heard a band that just can't seem to harmonize? It's kind of hard to listen to them, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you, the local church does not operate well when it is not in harmony, when there is tremendous disharmony among the people, when there are factions among the people in, in the church. And this is what Peter is talking about. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's a shame when it happens. Uh, Vincent Chang writes this, Although the New Testament often stresses unity and harmony between brothers and sisters in Christ, it appears to be an uncommon trait among Christians today. That seems to be true. One of the fastest rising industries in church work is, is mediation, the mediation industry, the, the conflict resolution industry in church work. And I think that's, that's, that's sad. Uh, by the way, I have a theory on why this is true. It's not the only reason, but I believe this is one of the reasons why it's true that we're not, we're not very good at harmony in the church. I, I think it's because we don't have enough persecution, oppression, and suffering. Isn't that a wonderful thing to wake up to on Sunday morning? Your pastor's telling you you're not oppressed enough, not suffering enough, not persecuted enough. You know, some of us think that we are persecuted, and we are to some extent. But persecution and suffering is relative, and and I would suggest that compared to the early church, the context in which Peter writes in, and compared to other parts of the world where people actually give their lives, literally, for their faith, uh, we don't quite suffer as much as they did. We're not quite as uh, uh, oppressed. And, and that's why the people in the early church were so much closer. The church fathers write about the harmony that was there. And, and, and even people outside of the church used to write about how wonderful the church was. They would say, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with that Jesus person that they're all excited about. But the church really is manifesting itself in a way that is, that is united and in harmony and does good for the community that they live in. It's also true of the churches in other parts of the world where people actually die for their faith, that they're much closer, they're much more unified, that they live in greater harmony. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever seen a family that just seems to be at odds with each other all the time, constantly bickering, constantly sniping at each other? You ever seen how quickly they unify and harmonize when an attack comes from the outside of the family? See, that's true. We, we tend to uh, uh, really uh, get together and, and seek the commonality when we're under attack. That's just human nature, I think. But it's especially true of the church. And again, I'm not, I'm not somebody who, 
prays and wishes that we would suffer more. I'm not, I'm not really into that, but I will tell you that, that there have been people who have actually offered prayers similar to that. Uh, six or eight years ago, I was reading a book. I cannot remember the name of the book. I've heard other people talk about this, uh, this story before as well, though. There was a missionary who had gone to China, and, and uh, as you know, in China, it can be tough to be a Christian, and, and he was visiting an underground church. And they were meeting, and, and they were meeting in secrecy. And, and one night, he was praying uh, in the midst of these church leaders in this underground church for, in, in China, and, and he started to pray that the government of, of uh, China would become more open and tolerant of the Christian faith and be willing to accept that as, as part of their culture because of the oppression and suffering that these people were were enduring, and, and maybe that would lift the fog of oppression and suffering. Uh, the story goes that the pastor heard that prayer and immediately began to silently pray against that prayer because he believed that that was what was making the church strong and unified and harmonized was the fact that they were suffering. And he was worried that if they didn't suffer that, that oppression, that maybe the church would become fragmented and, uh, fragmented and, and self-centered and, and start to have many of the problems that we struggle with here today. Again, I'm not saying that that's what I'm hoping for, but I am saying that nothing can unify a people like uh, an attack. So the first thing we're to do is to live in harmony. The second thing is he, he calls us to is sympathy. Now, this word sympathy in the Greek is, is one of those words, again, where the English does not do the Greek justice. Generally, when you and I hear the word sympathy, we think of the lowest possible standard of feeling sorry for another person because of what they are going through or what has happened to them. But that's not what this Greek word means. It's not even empathy, which takes sympathy up a notch. Empathy tries to imagine what it would be like to be that person who is in the middle of something really horrible. But, but the Greek word is even more than empathy. Literally, this Greek word means to live together in each other's experiences. To live together in each other's experiences. And there are two ways that this is manifested. And I need to tell you about both of them. The first way is this. First of all, there's a scholar named David Augsburger, and he's done a very good job of explaining this by using the word interpathy. So he says there's like a hierarchy. There's sympathy at the bottom, then empathy, and then interpathy at the top of the hierarchy. Interpathy goes beyond sympathy. It goes beyond empathy to a place where you have actually lived through the situation yourself that the other person is going through, so you really do know what it's like for that person to go through it. Literally, interpathy means you enter another person's pain with firsthand knowledge of the pain. Uh, years and years ago, um, uh, as a pastor uh, uh, in, in, in our smaller community at the time, there was a young couple that was pregnant. And, and it was a tragic story because uh, along about the sixth or seventh month, the wife woke up one day and, and uh, kind of went through the morning and then suddenly realized that the baby hadn't hadn't been moving, and so she called her husband, and her husband was concerned. He said, call the doctor. The doctor said, you got to get down to emergency right away, and the baby had died. The baby was stillborn. It was a tragic situation, and as the pastor, I was called, and, and I went down there, and, and I will tell you, I had never experienced anything like this. Uh, I, I didn't know. I really, as far as I knew, I hadn't known anybody who'd ever been through this. I've known very few people who have actually been through miscarriages, so I had very little experience with this. I did the best I could to minister and, and to be available, but, but I felt so deficient in that area. 
Well, a couple of years ago, we had another couple, young couple in the church, exact same scenario. Sometime in the sixth or seventh month, the wife got up, noticed the baby wasn't uh, moving around, called her husband. He said, call the doctor. They said, go down to the emergency room, and the same problem. The baby was dead, and, and it was a stillborn baby. Again, tragic. So I was called. What was interesting to me was that before I got there, somebody else had already arrived in order to minister to this couple. It was the previous couple who had lost their child two years earlier. And you have to understand that those people didn't have a degree. They didn't have any training. They weren't working as a professional religious person like I was. Yet they were the ones that could sincerely minister to this couple. And at that point, the professional, vocational a uh, salaried minister was relegated to getting people coffee and, and water, as it should be. This is one of the reasons why redemption communities are so important to us, because it, it gets us into each other's lives, and it helps us to understand each other's experiences, and we begin to connect dots with other people, and we begin to realize that some of us have had the same experiences as other people, or as they are going to have, and that helps us to be able to minister to them in community by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. It's a powerful way to be able to minister so that's the first way that we experience biblical sympathy. And the second way is this. This word literally means that we are to live with each other in such a way that what happens to one of us happens to all of us. You see, we are all members of the same body. So when one member suffers, all of us suffer. Uh, I'm a runner, so if maybe I injure my foot and my foot is injured, I, I, I will tell you that the member of my foot is suffering, but also I am suffering as well. My entire body is suffering because I can't go out and run. So as a result of my foot suffering, I am suffering. I am in, endured in that. But then also, each member is supposed to rejoice and celebrate when one member does well. So my foot gets better and now my whole body and my soul rejoice in the fact that I can go out and, and run happily on the canal banks again. That's the way it is. In, it's the way it's supposed to be in the church. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. God has so composed the body, the church, giving greater honor to the part or the member that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So Peter says we are to harmonize, we are to sympathize, and we are to have brotherly and sisterly love for each other. We, we talked about this from chapter 1 at great length, so uh, really I'm not going to cover it here. But generally what this means is that literally we are to show affection for one another at all times. We are to have compassionate affection for each other. Fourth, Peter says that we're to have a tender heart toward one another. Now this Greek word is interesting because it literally refers, this Greek word for tender heart literally refers to your intestines, your innermost organs, literally your guts. And that's a very tender part of our body, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of the area we, we tend to protect uh, the most. And also in antiquity, when, when people referred to the heart, they didn't think of the word heart the way we do today. Obviously, today we use the heart sometimes to refer to that organ in our body that pumps blood. 
but also we use the word heart to refer to the system in our brain, the affective system in our brain where our emotions, passions, and feelings come from. That's not really how they used the word uh, in, in uh, 2,000 years ago. They used the word to talk about who you are and what you're committed to at a gut level. So literally, what Peter is saying here is that our love and our compassion for each other are to come from the deepest recesses of our bowels. From the deepest part of who we are on the inside, that's where our love is supposed to come from. So Peter says that we are to harmonize, sympathize, affectionize, and tenderize. And finally, he says that we are to be humble. We are to embrace humility. And literally, the Greek word here means to be of low-mindedness. Be of low-mindedness. Now, no, this does not mean that you're supposed to be dumb. That's not what it's talking about here. Literally, what it means is what C.S. Lewis said decades ago. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2. I think I've managed to get this verse into every one of these sermons uh, in 1 Peter, but here it is. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Now, as you may know, the ancient Greeks and Romans all thought that humility was actually a vice and a weakness. It was certainly not a virtue. And when Paul and, and Jesus and the rest of the Peter, when they all came along with this ethic of humility, they were laughed at and they were mocked. And it was, it was so totally countercultural. That is a sign of weakness to be humble. That is a, that is a vice. You will not live well if you, if you have humility. Nietzsche, even, even Nietzsche, in, in the 20th century, he had the same feeling about it as well. He used to mock the biblical notion of humility, and he mocked it openly. But for Christians, it really is a great virtue. It may be the greatest virtue because it's the opposite of pride, which C.S. Lewis is the greatest sin of all. And this is really important to understand. Humility is deliberate. Humility is learned and practiced and sought after. One commentator says this, one is not compelled to be humble, and one does not become humble by accident, Rather, one decides to be humble and then acts on that decision by the power of the Holy Spirit. So in verse 8, Peter is saying that in order to live a life of subjection to others, we're going to have to be unified in the church. And these five characteristics will go a long way toward all of us supporting each other in that endeavor. Then Peter hits us with this in verse 9, which again is not a new biblical notion, but he says it for us. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now clearly, we in the church are supposed to live with this kind of ethic with those who are outside of the church. That would be true. But in the context that Peter is talking about here, he is pressing down on the idea that in the church we're supposed to behave this way with each other. In other words, Peter is acknowledging what many of us here today know to be true. That some of the worst behavior we see when it comes to how people treat each other is actually manifested at times in the local church between people who ought to know better with each other. And so Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, calls us to remain kind and tender-hearted to each other, even in the, in the midst of an attack from somebody that we're not expecting attack from, somebody who is one of our own, somebody who should not be behaving that way, we're to remain kind and tender-hearted. Few people I know of uh, get this more than this person I ran across 
uh, named, uh, she's a saint, Saint Therese of Lisieux. She was a 19th century Carmelite nun. And, and, and very young, she went in to the convent and, and uh, had a great deal of wisdom, even at a very young age. And, and like many Christians today, she used, she used to journal, she would write in her journal. She found herself in a convent at a young age with another nun. There were many nuns there, but there was one in particular whom she found very annoying and disagreeable. Very annoying and disagreeable. Now, let me just pause there and say this was in the 19th century. I'm really glad that in the 21st century, you and I never have to put up with annoying and disagreeable people in our workplaces, in our families, or in the church. So this may be totally irrelevant to us today, but I'm going to go with it anyway. But she practiced this discipline of journaling, and so we have copies of her journals now. And she wrote about this nun, and she also wrote about her call to biblical sympathy, interpathy, and charity, especially in the midst of difficulty, reigning supreme in her life. And I want to read you a little section of her journal, and just listen to her wisdom and her winsomeness as she talks about this. She writes, one of the nuns managed to manages to irritate me whenever she, whatever she does or says. The devil is mixed up in it, for it was certainly he who made me see so many disagreeable traits in her. Let me just pause there for a second. How many of us are willing, when somebody is annoying us and disagreeable to us, and, and we'd like to maybe, you know, do something we shouldn't do to them, how many of us will stop and think that Satan might be mixed up in this and that Satan's sort of pressing down on us and getting us to see things in a way that maybe we shouldn't see? See, she had the insight to be able to figure this out. As I did not want to give way to my natural dislike of her, she's very honest with herself, I told myself that charity should not only be a matter of feeling, but should show itself in deeds as well. So I set myself to do for this sister just what I would have done for someone I loved most dearly. Every time I met her, I prayed for her and offered God, I told God, of all of her virtues and her merits. Are we any good at that? Is that how we handle disagreeable people? So when we're attacked with evil and reviling, we, we, we need to resist this temptation to retaliate. Instead, we should return a blessing. We should pray for them. Buy them a Diet Mountain Dew or a vanilla latte or an ultimate cheeseburger from Jack in the Box, whatever it is. Bless them. And Peter says that if you do this, you might even obtain a, a blessing in return as a result. Now, right away, you know, we're transactional people, so we want to know, well, what kind of blessing are we going to get? Am I going to get the numbers to the lottery? Is my commute time to work going to be cut down by half? What's going to, are the Suns actually going to win 30 games this year? I mean, what kind of blessing am I going to get? What's it going to be? Well, experience has shown me that there are two fairly common types of blessings that can result from this ethic in our lives. The first one is that the person perpetrating the evil calms down and eventually repents of their sin. Now, if you compare this passage to the similar passage in Romans chapter 12, verses, 12 through 17, verses 17 through 21, this is one of the things that Paul actually talks about there. Yes, he talks about how God says, vengeance is mine, so wait for the Lord, but he also talks about the fact that your blessing, your good behavior towards somebody who does evil to you might actually result in that person repenting, okay? So that's the first blessing that you can have. Or second of all, you begin to see and relate to that person from a new perspective, one that is more favorable. When I was a brand new Christian, 
I started learning from Jackie, my wife, that when people irritate her, when people annoy her, she doesn't pray that that person would change, which I thought was kind of (laughs) stupid. Isn't that what you pray for, that the other person would change, that the other person would not be so annoying, that the other person wouldn't be so disagreeable? God, change that person so that my life could be better. She didn't do that. She taught me this ethic of praying. What she would do is she would pray that she would change her attitude about that person, that God would give her the power to see that person in a new light. And, And so rapidly, like within the first 15 or 20 years of our marriage, I finally inculcated that ethic into our marriage. I'm telling you, it just, it was so countercultural to me, but I will tell you, that's the proper response. And there is a blessing in that. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed for somebody who I find annoying, and, and the next thing you know, I find them delightful. God is really good in that, in that way. Finally, in the first half of this passage, Peter uses... Uh, Part of Psalm 34 is a sermon illustration. He says this, Whoever desires to love and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. I tell you, if I had time, I would go immediately right here to James chapter 3. It is the longest contiguous uh, teaching and preaching in the New Testament on the evils and destruction of our tongues, uh, of of how badly we treat people with our, our mouths. Because that's exactly what he's talking about here. He says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now this psalm is quoted by Peter because it is a psalm of trust. And what Peter is presenting us with in these five verses as he ties the bow on this section of the letter is, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust yourself? Because I'll tell you, the things that Peter has been teaching are counterintuitive and things that we don't do in our natural desires, in our natural flesh. But Peter's been saying to put off our natural desires and move into being holy by the power of the resurrected Christ in us. And so these are the things that we're supposed to do. And in order to do that, we have to trust God. So he says, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust God? And it's also a psalm of deliverance. David writes this psalm because he knows that God is the God who can save. He's praising God because he's the one who can deliver when all seems lost. He's the one who can vindicate us so that we don't have to be involved in our own vindication, which would really free up a lot of our time if you think about it. He is the one, God is the one who in his right way and his right time will carry out justice. And that's why we can return a blessing for evil and reviling. So here's one of the things that Peter is saying. There's essentially three ways that we can seek justice. Three ways. Number one, we can seek justice by God, allowing him to do it in his way and in his time. We can also seek justice, secondly, through legal remedy, by submitting to the governing authorities. And we've talked about how we can submit ourselves to the governing authorities in an effort to seek justice. But we also need to understand that, that when we do submit ourselves to that process, there are costs associated with that. And it's just possible that at the end of the day, we may have achieved a victory by going through a governmental uh, agency or the court system or whatever it is. We may have achieved victory, but the cost of that victory outweighs the benefits of that victory. So we have to be careful there. And then the third way that we can seek justice is the way that the Bible specifically speaks against. And that would be what one scholar calls through private revenge and secret mischief. How many of you like to engage in secret mischief? 
against others. Children. Parents. <laughs> singles. All, all of us. Okay. And this is the one that Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, and Proverbs tells us not to engage in. Proverbs 20, 22. Do not say, I will repay evil, but rather wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. So there's our first five verses. Let me remind you of the big idea there. In the midst of subjecting ourselves to and serving others, those in the church need to be united and unwavering in our desire to be a blessing to others. Now verses 13 through 17. As a Christian, be prepared to suffer for doing good by placing your hope in Jesus. So verses 13 through 17 say this. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, the people who are making you suffer, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so this paragraph starts with a rhetorical question that sounds like Peter is arguing that if you live a righteous life, you will never have to suffer. But that's not true. Because we don't live in that kind of, of world. What Peter really is saying by asking this rhetorical question, he's kind of asking it in a, in a sarcastic way. He's saying, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to work. But unfortunately, we live in a fallen and corrupt world. This would be true in a perfect world, but we live in a fallen and corrupt world where everything is upside down. And so the reality is that specifically because of our faith, we're going to be attacked and ridiculed and we're going to suffer. Jesus said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. Let me ask you a question. Did they persecute Jesus? Not a trick question. Paul says in 2 Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me ask you this question. Do you ever find yourself, based on the trouble you have, asking if it's worth it to follow Jesus because of that trouble? Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. Let me ask you a question. Do you see a lot of trouble in this world? The best part of that verse, though, that Jesus has there in John 16, he says, in this world you will have trouble, but what does he say next? But take heart, for I have overcome this world. That's Christ living in you, and that is our hope. So then the rest of this paragraph is written under the assumption that we're going to suffer, but that we have the power of Jesus with us. Here's what one commentator writes. Even the most conscious person, persons cannot escape the censures and slanders of evil persons. And I know what some of you might be thinking now. I know, I know this because I've, I've thought this myself. Wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. Jesus was supposed to give me a life of comfort and ease. He was supposed to give me that proverbial path strewn with roses. I was going to frolic in the meadows and enjoy my newfound popularity as a Christian. I know that's a little bit of hyperbole, but you get my point there. By the way, there is no such life as that with or without Jesus. There is no such life as that with or without religion. There is no such life as that God-fearing person or atheistic nihilist. It, it, it just doesn't exist. But the Bible is the only doctrinal 
ethic that's honest enough to tell us the truth about that and then tell us that still, still, even in the midst of all of the junk that, that, that the world throws at us, have a living hope and an eternal inheritance in the resurrected Christ. So Peter says that when we do suffer for righteousness' sakes, we will be blessed. And generally, that blessing comes from the knowledge that we have eternity to look forward to and that God is going to provide us the grace now in order to get to that eternity. So it's not just about the eternity we look forward to, but it's about the grace that we have now in order to get there. That, that this world is nothing more than a pit stop. That, that what happens here isn't the end of the story. And that we have a hope and a future that is eternal, but he's giving us the power to get there as we live. And that's why so many people can endure this while so many others cannot, because they have the power of Jesus. Uh, Tom Schrader, who is the founding pastor of, the, of Redemption Gilbert, and who until the end of this year is going to be the teaching pastor there, we, we, we mentioned that he's transitioning into some other duties now. Um, he has a, a saying that he likes to use. Those of you that know Tom have heard this probably a number of times, and it goes like this, and you really, you, you really have to think about this maybe to, in order to really get it, but here's what he says. No matter how bad it gets, it can only last a lifetime. I know that's simultaneously encouraging and depressing, isn't it? But it's true. And the point he's trying to make is that this life here is but a blip on the screen. And even then, in the midst of that, God is going to give us the grace to be able to get through it. That's what James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 is all about. You know, it's interesting how many people want to make a big splash for Christianity only to fizzle out in the first quarter of the game. Yet, yet I have found that so many of the true inspirational giants of the faith are the ones who have silently, quietly suffered through a life of trouble and tribulation and have remained steadfast in that and have staunchly clung to Christ and to the Holy Spirit in them. And, and as a pastor, I will tell you, one of the, I think one of the great tragedies is that very often I only find out about that in people's life at the end of their life when we know they're dying and people are gathering around and I'm with the family and I'm, and I'm really talking to the person now and of course at that moment in your life you're really talking about important, you don't care how many games the sons are going to win anymore at that point. You're talking about really important stuff and that's when you begin to learn about the journeys of some of these people that, that they really believe in something called long obedience in the same direction. That they really understand perseverance, steadfastness, loyalty, Patience, resolve, and diligence. And I know that those things aren't very sexy, but those are things that you and I desperately want in our lives. But they come through faithful submission and obedience and understanding that as a new creature, you have the resurrected Christ in you. And so you, you, you deal with this suffering and this tribulation and the oppression that we do come across. We understand the value of those things. So Peter says that when you have this hope, this life in Jesus that we don't have to be uh, afraid of or troubled by. Literally, the Greek word in the passage there is we don't have to in be intimidated by those who do attack us even as we are living well. I think clearly Peter had in mind the words of Jesus when he wrote this, which were, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, don't be afraid of people. Rather, place your trust in the eternal, creator, saving God. 
By the way, this is something that's very, very interesting about Peter. If ever there was somebody who was afraid of people, it was Peter. Now, I'm talking pre-resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus was deathly afraid of people. before the re- He was a people pleaser. He was afraid of what people thought. He was in fear for his life all of the time. Even when he, when he supposedly boldly got out that sword and cut off the, the, the Roman soldier's ear, that was actually an act of fear. He was doing that out of fear. He was even shouted down by this little servant girl when the servant girl came to him and said, didn't you know that guy that's being crucified? And he said, no, not me. I was not with them. He was afraid. But after the resurrection... Completely new Peter, a brand new creation. In Christ, he feared nothing. In fact, he became the the picture of fearlessness. He got rid of his sword, and his only weapon became the, the grace of the gospel, the compassion and mercy of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what he fought with. And he did it with dignity and boldness. And he did it with firmness and conviction. And he did it because he was in the gospel now and the gospel was in him. And it was because the resurrected Christ was living in him. That's what the gospel does for us. The gospel is the resurrection. The gospel is victory over Satan, sin, and death. Gospel is the power to live this life of endurance under the knowledge that we have Christ with us and we have this great inheritance that we're looking forward to. And that's exactly what Peter tells us here. And he says it's, it's not enough to simply uh, not be afraid or intimidated, but he also tells us that on the other hand, we're, we're to honor Christ. That we have him in our hearts, and so we have the power to live according to, to how we're called. And, and again, what this is, is Peter doing what the Bible does throughout, what Paul was so good at, what Jesus was so good at. It's not that Peter says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, but he says, don't do this, but do this. So it's not just about the don'ts of life, it's also about the do's. Don't lie, but tell the truth. Don't commit adultery, but live a Christ-honoring sexual ethic. There's a both and to all of this. And then, as a result of holding Christ in our hearts, Peter says that we will always be prepared to give a, a defense, literally to present a case for the reason we have this living a hope in us that allows us to live this way. Now, that word defense is apologia or apology, but not in the sense that we say, I'm sorry, but rather it's apology in the classic and traditional sense, meaning a rational, reasonable, logical, understanding argument about who Jesus is. In other words, we're supposed to be ready at any time to be able to tell people about Jesus. And by the way, you don't need some sort of a degree to be able to do this. What you need is to be in Christ and have the Holy Spirit living in you and in the midst of a faith community and you can go and tell people about Jesus. And you can present a defense of who he is, present a case of who he is just based on the testimony of what he's done in your life. Now this is pretty interesting though. We have to deal with this. Peter says that we're supposed to do this defense of Jesus with gentleness and respect. And I think all of us get that. I mean, just in practice, we get that. We've been witness to the Jesus freak who freaks out, the Jesus freak who gets the bullhorn, the Jesus freak who corners you at some family function and, and tattoos you with a verbal assault that Bill Maher would be proud of. We've, we've all experienced that kind of, of a Christian. But how do we square 
this idea of doing it with gentleness and respect with how Jesus and Paul, frankly, sometimes behaved towards others. Well, here's how we square it. And by no means is this an exhaustive explanation, but it does get us started on the conversation. Uh, Usually, Jesus and Paul were what I would say a tad snarky to two types of people, neither of which Peter is really talking about here in verse 15. The first is the prideful, self-righteous, religious person. The person who's really not interested in debate or dialogue, but is rather interested in protecting their area of influence, their area of power, their area of perhaps income. So like professional religious people, like the Pharisees, or maybe a 21st century pastor who doesn't have it quite right. The second would be unrepentant sinners who are actually Christians. So this is the second group of people, people who know better and are in the faith, but they are rebelling. Both of these kind of people. Now, it's not that you get to condemn them and punish them, but usually they're not that interested in a reasonable and logical argument because they know those reasonable and logical arguments. Instead, what they need is something known as a prophetic intervention, which is also biblical. They need a declaration of the truth that they cannot help but notice even if they wholeheartedly reject it. These are people that are not some co-worker or family member that you're engaging in debate. That's a whole different context. And that's why in this context we talk about gentleness and respect. So Peter says that way when we present the gospel with gentleness and respect we can have a good conscience about it. Now again, I've got to have a word on that as well. As Christians, our conscience can be a good guide for when we do well or for when we sin or maybe we've gone too far on something. But our conscience is not a good guide because our heart is so wonderful. We need to understand that. We need to remember Jeremiah 17, 9 that says the heart is wicked and deceitful above everything else. Who can understand it? It's not the, it's not the power of our heart, of our flesh that helps us here. But the reason the conscience can be helpful in reflecting on our behavior is that we have the Holy Spirit in us as Christians, guiding us, directing us, and convincing us, and sometimes even making us feel guilty about when we screw things up. That's right. I would say that in in many circles, guilt's gotten a bad rap in our culture. And rather than dealing with it honestly, we've, we've come up with all these different ways that we try to, to deal with guilt and alleviate people from their guilt with one exception. And here's that exception. Accept responsibility for our sin, repent, and place our hope in Jesus. That is the best way to deal with guilt. Accept responsibility, repent, and then place our hope in Jesus. The reason is because this loving, merciful Savior restores us. And take on the cross, he died for our sin, which means he also died for the guilt and shame of that sin as well. It's been taken care of. And so we can repent in confidence to Jesus. We can turn from that sin and admit it. Luther said it this way, the Christian life is one of repentance. And it's because in repentance, we actually make progress in our sanctification in becoming more like Jesus. And so we rely on the Holy Spirit in our conscience. And if we do that, if we rely on the power of the resurrected Christ and the Holy Spirit in us, Peter says in verse 16 that there is another practical consequence. He says that when we're slandered, and we will be slandered, those who slander you will be put to shame. Now notice, it does not say you will put the slanderer to shame. No, it doesn't say that. 
You see, there's a huge difference between putting someone to shame, not the biblical way, and allowing someone to be shamed as a result of their behavior and the work of the Holy Spirit in them. When we put someone to shame, it's not transformative. I have never, I've done this. I have never gone to somebody and shamed them in their behavior and found them somehow transformed by the love and power of Jesus Christ in them. What they might experience is behavior modification in order to keep me from doing that again. But that's not genuine transformation, and that is not the gospel. The other thing that happens when we go and shame people is it's, it, it, in a way, it's, it's us going to them and saying, I'm better than you. And that's not transformative either. It's just not compelling to share the good news of Jesus Christ by shaming people. And it's also, in many cases, cruel and embarrassing, which is not really the standard operating procedure of the gospel. But rather, when they are shamed, they are shamed because they've considered their own behavior in, in light of the Holy Spirit now working in their lives. And the Holy Spirit works in our lives before we even come to Christ. They're shamed when they, they look at their behavior in light of who Jesus is, and then they say, that's not right. And then in that shame which is brought about by understanding who Jesus is, they come to Jesus in repentance and faith because that is the gospel. Peter then wraps up with the statement that frankly should be a foregone conclusion at this point. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You know, if you suffer for, for doing evil, you know, frankly, we could make the argument that you kind of deserve what you get. I mean, I know that I've suffered for doing evil, and I deserve what I got, you know? It wasn't pleasant, but I still deserved it. And there's no blessing or, or need of faith there, suffering for doing evil. But knowing that ultimately your life is God's, and in His grace, if you suffer for doing good, He will protect you when you need protection, and He'll provide for you when you need provision. And that he'll discipline you when you need discipline. And ultimately, he'll take you when it's time for you to be taken for his good purposes. That's a blessing. That's the grace that we have in our lives. That's, that's how it's better to suffer for doing good. Four quick suggestions in light of this teaching for us today. And then I'm done. Here's the first one. You go back to verse 8. And here's suggestion number one. Be mindful of how we treat each other. In the church, be mindful of how we treat each other. Understand, this is one of those things that Peter continuously circles back to in this letter. Paul is a very linear writer. Peter, in many respects, writes very, in a circular way. He keeps revisiting topics, and this is one that he is, he is revisiting again. Jesus said it this way, "...by this people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another." Peter said it this way in chapter 2, verse 1. He said, put away slander, gossip, malice, deceit, and hypocrisy, which is kind of the norm for how people treat each other. He said it, he stated it in the negative in chapter 2, verse 1. He said, put away those things. Now he's telling us in the positive, we are to mindfully embrace unity, sympathy, love, tenderness, and humility toward one another. So be mindful of how we treat each other. Second of all, Verse 14 tells us that we are to expect opposition and reviling. Expect it. Know that it's going to come. I've already made a point clearly many times that this is the theme of Scripture, that, that we should expect this. But it's not just that we are to expect it. We are to also serve in the midst of it and in spite of it. 
There are a lot of us who, as Christians, we want to suffer quietly by battening down the hatches and just kind of living within our own quiet little community or moving to Montana or something like that where there's nobody around to persecute us or, or bother us. By the way, there's a lot of people moving to Montana, so they're there too as well, and they'll find you and they'll, they'll get after you. But we think that if we just kind of live within ourselves, no, 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 no. God is saying even in the midst of that persecution, you're to go out and live for Christ. That's the whole idea behind Jeremiah 29 when the Israelites were taken to Babylon and and, and they were 700 miles from their home and from their temple and from what was familiar to them. And, And Jeremiah said this, he said, in the midst of this suffering, you are to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Redemption Arcadia, you and I also are in exile in a sense, in Phoenix. We're citizens of heaven, but God has placed us right here strategically in the Arcadia area of Phoenix, and so we are to seek the welfare of this city, of this neighborhood, of this community that God has placed us in, and, Jeremiah says, to pray to the Lord on its behalf. We should be praying for our city and for its welfare, because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. As we go out and transform this community by the power of Christ, we actually will receive the benefits of the welfare that we are giving to the community. Third, we should be prepared. We should be ready. We need to be mindful of this as well. And this is one area where I would argue that the redemption communities and our Wednesday night classes are so helpful. If you're not in a redemption community, and you're not coming to the Wednesday night classes when you can, I would reconsider that. I would would consider that. I would pray about it. I would seek a way to start doing that because that's one of the best ways that you can be prepared for when trouble comes. I'm telling you, when you have a redemption community that surrounds you when life is tough, there is nothing like it. There's also nothing like the despair of having a crisis in life and realizing you don't have anybody to call. That's why you need to be in a redemption community. That's why you need to be in these Wednesday classes. And then fourth, I would say this is the most important one. Verse 15, bring every area of your life under the lordship of Jesus. None of these first three even matter if the rest of our lives aren't under the lordship of Christ. Peter says, listen, make sure that you are living under the lordship of Jesus in his hope. All of life is all for Jesus, and we need to understand that the real power in this world is actually in the living, resurrected Son of God, Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we just uh, pray that as you continue to challenge us through the words of Peter, that you would uh, give us the courage to be able to do this. We, We need the power of your Spirit in us, and we know we have it, but we also just need to know how to understand it and access it. So give us that insight, give us that wisdom. We pray that you would help us to do that in Christ's name. Amen.